everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. We have a special today, hence I will not be doing our normal health and nutrition segment. That will come on tomorrow. Instead, we're going to do a two-hour special presentation. The first hour will be live on all of our sister stations, including WBAI, on PRN, and other stations around the world. The second hour, however, is going to be only available by going to the archives, and it'll be posted when you go over there. So you can listen to the one live and save the other till later when it's convenient or listen to it as well. What is the topic? The topic is what's wrong with the entire narrative we're hearing about the conflict in the Middle East. And part of the problem is that virtually all the media is only giving us one side of the story. And almost all of Congress, except 15 members of the House, want to give unlimited immediate funding and weapons, whatever is needed, to Israel, as if that's what it needs in order to stop Hamas. Now, any reasonable and responsible and spiritual-based human being realizes what was done to the Israeli settlers was, oh, is it, it was almost unimaginable in its, in its sense of butchery. And here's the problem. When you're seeking justice, shouldn't you seek that justice within the boundaries of what is appropriate? Well, finding the people who perpetrated this, who organized it, who funded it, who armed them, and who executed it, yes, those individuals should be held accountable. However, if you just stop there, you don't have the complete story. Where's the rest of the context? Why did this happen? Is there anything that could possibly precipitate this? And the American media, our State Department, our White House, our Defense Department, and virtually both houses of Congress say no. No. And then it's and then you have to look at, okay, what is your response? Well, the response is a scorched earth response. So you're going after all Hamas. No, you're also going after all civilians, including completely innocent civilian men, women, and children, who more often than not, because they were Palestinian and supported Arafat, the Palestinian Liberation Army, they were against Hamas. Hamas was created by the CIA and... Uh, the Mossad and the, and the government of Israel to fight against the Palestinian Liberation Army and Arafat. But they don't talk about that story. They also don't talk about a proportional rea re re reaction. Right now, there is no completely accurate figure because there was massive bombing overnight. Uh, whole, whole areas were completely destroyed, whole blocks destroyed. And no one knows the fatality level. But it was above 10,000 before last night, with about 3,000 children dead. It's now guesstimated to be about 20,000 dead and about 5,000 children. So where is it acceptable to say because they butchered these innocent Israeli citizens, we have the right to butcher unlimited amounts of their innocent civilians. And then we're going to completely destroy every place that they live so they have no homes, they have no electricity, no water, no food, 
and we're putting them in an area that we also bombed in southern in southern Israel, the place we told them to go to be safe. Well, there's no safety there either, as you will see. Why isn't this part of the story told? On a few shows where Palestinians are allowed to speak, like on, on Piers Morgan, he immediately uh, cuts them off, and just like Sean Hannity. But Hannity is worse because Hannity and Laura Ingram, the others over at Fox and other networks, they believe that anything that Israel does in response is acceptable, no matter what the civilian casualties. I'm quite sure if a million Palestinian men, women, and children were killed, he wouldn't lose a nice sleep on it. He would still find a way of justifying his friendship with Netanyahu and uh, that tells you a lot based on people's friends. So here's the question. Is there a positive solution to the Middle East crisis before it spreads, before Hezbollah in Lebanon starts entering, or before, before let's say, Iran is attacked? And Netanyahu made an interesting comment, and a couple of people high up in his administration made comments that they will absolutely destroy Iran. Okay, there you're talking about 90 million people. Do you care how many of those people you kill? And there's no way in the world that uh, Israel could defeat Iran unless they use a nuclear weapon. But based upon the propaganda coming from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all these other propaganda machines for Israel, they can justify it. They will be able to do it. But then they'll explain how it's purely to stop the madness and kill the enemy as if that would work. So look to the idea that it's entirely possible that Israel will use a what they will call in some fashion a limited nuclear strike. You know, a little, little limited one. No. You know, a lot of people are going to die. And still they won't win because you're not dealing with Al-Qaeda. You're not dealing with uh, Mujahideen. You're dealing with, you know, some very hardened, technically uh, well-equipped people. And mind you, they're going to be supported by Russia and China. You want to draw Russia and China into a war? Then you've got a world war. And the United States would lose in a heartbeat. Do you think for a second? Think for a moment. And this is what amazes me, that all these so-called best and bright journalists haven't thought of this. That Russia and China together have hundreds of thousands of technicians working on cybersecurity. They want to be able to win a war without using conventional warfare. And they could do that. And they haven't done it in Ukraine because they didn't need to do it, and it would have tipped their hand that they could do it. They could turn off all electric power in the United States. They could turn off the nuclear power stations. You have no idea what they're capable of. So what's to stop them once you start a war? And we're very good at starting wars. We're not good at finishing them, and we haven't won a war. We lost the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the, uh, the Afghanistan War and the Iraq War. And all we leave is just, well, since World War II, we've lost 20 million people on this planet because the United States has corrupted foreign policy. So today, over two hours, I'm not going to do any more of the talking. I'm just going to go from clip to clip where someone who would not be given a chance to debate or have a forum will have that debate. You can agree or disagree with them, and that's fine. There'll be people in the audience say, 
Well, some of that makes sense and some of it doesn't. That's fine. That's your right. But on my program, I follow the philosophy of Lou Hill, the founder of Pacifica, and that is be a voice for the voiceless. So later, I will give you an idea how there could be peace and how it could prosper for both the Christians, the Jewish population, and the Palestinian population, but not when a small cabal of very corrupt, morally bankrupt individuals control both sides of the issue. I want to begin with a commentary from Chris Hedges. It's entitled, Exterminate All the Brutes, and I'm quoting him, and it'll be posted if you'd like to download it. I had Chris on live last week. Quote, all settler colonial projects, including Israel, reach a point when they embrace wholesale slaughter and genocide to eradicate a native population that refuses to capitulate. During the siege of Sanjovo, when I was reporting for the New York Times, we never endured the level of saturated bombing and near total blockage of food, water, fuel, and medicine that Israel has imposed on Gaza. We never endured hundreds of dead and wounded a day. We never endured the complicity of the international community in the Serbian campaign of genocide. We never endured Washington intervening to block ceasefire resolutions. We never endured massive arms shipments from the United States and Western countries to sustain the siege. We never endured press reports from Sarajevo that were routinely discredited and dismissed by the international community, although 25 journalists were killed in the war by the besieging Serbian forces. We never endured Western governments justifying the siege as the right of the Serbs to defend themselves, although the UN peacekeepers sent to Bosnia were largely a public relations gesture, ineffective in holding the slaughter until forced to respond following the massacres of 8,000 Bosniak men and boys. I don't mean to minimize the horror of the siege of Sarajevo, which gives me nightmares nearly three decades later, but what we suffered, three to four hundred shells a day, four to five dead a day, and two dozen wounded a day, is a tiny fraction of the wholesale deaths and destruction in Gaza. The Israeli siege of Gaza more resembles the Weimark's assault on Stalingrad, where over 90% of the city buildings were destroyed. On Friday, the Gaza Strip had all the communications severed, no internet, no phone service, no electricity. Israel's goal is the murder of tens, probably hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, and the ethnic cleansing of those who survive in refugee camps in Egypt. In an attempt by Israel to erase not only a people, but the idea of Palestine. It is a carbon copy of the massive campaigns of radicalized, racialized slaughter by other settler colonial projects who believe that indiscriminate and wholesale violence could make the aspirations of an oppressed people whose land they stole go away. And like other perpetrators of genocide, Israel intends to keep it hidden. 
Israel's bombing campaign, one of the heaviest of the 21st century, has killed more than 7,300 Palestinians, nearly half of them children, along with 26 journalists, medical workers, teachers, and the United Nations staff. Some 1.4 million Palestinians in Gaza have been displaced and an estimated 600,000 are homeless. Mosques, 120 health facilities, ambulances, schools, apartment blocks, supermarkets, water and sewage treatment plants, and power plants have been blasted into rubble. Hospital and clinics lacking fuel, medicine, electricity have been bombed or shutting down. Clean water is running out. Gaza, by the end of Israel's scorched earth campaign, will be uninhabitable, a tactic the Nazis regularly employed when facing armed resistance including in the Warsaw Ghetto and later Warsaw itself. By the time Israel is done, Gaza, or at least Gaza as we knew it, will no longer exist. Not only are the tactics the same, but so is the rhetoric. Palestinians are referred to as animals, beasts, and Nazis. They have no right to exist. Their children have no right to exist. They must be cleansed from the earth. The extermination of those whose land we steal, whose resources we plunder, and whose labor we exploit is coded within our DNA. Ask Native Americans, ask Indians, ask the Congolese, ask the Kikaluhu in Kenya, ask the Herero in Nambia, ask the Palestinians in Gaza. They were gunned down and driven into the desert concentration camps where they died of starvation and disease. 80,000 of them. Ask Iraqs. Ask Afghanistans. Ask Syrians. Ask Kurds. Ask Libyans. Ask indigenous people across the globe. They know who we are. Israel's distorted settler colonial vision is our own. We pretend otherwise. We ascribe to ourselves virtues and civilizing qualities that are, as in Israel, flimsy justifications for stripping unoccupied and besieged people of their rights, seizing their land, and using prolonged imprisonment and torture and humiliation in forced poverty and murder to keep them subjugated. Our past, including our recent past in the Middle East, is built on the idea of subduing or wiping out the inferior races of the earth. We give these so-called inferior races names that embody evil, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas. We use racist slurs to dehumanize them, Hajjai, Camel Jockey, Al-Baba, Dung Shoveler, and then because they embody evil, because they are less than human, we feel, well, we feel licensed as Nisim Atura, a member of the Israeli parliament for the ruling Likud party, said to erase, quote, erase Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. And also Bennett, Israel's former prime minister, in an interview on Sky News on October 12th, said, quote, we're fighting Nazis, end quote. In other words, absolute evil. Well, not to be outdone, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described Hamas in a press conference with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz as the new Nazis. Now think about that. A people imprisoned in the world's largest concentration camp for 16 years denied food, water, fuel, medicine, 
lacking any Army, Air Force, Navy, mechanized units, artillery, command and control and missile batteries, is being butchered and starved by one of the most advanced militaries on the planet. And yet, they are the Nazis, the Palestinians? There's a historical analogy here, but it is not one that Bennett, Netanyahu, or other Israeli leaders want to acknowledge. When those who are occupied refuse to submit, when they continue to resist, we drop all pretense of our civilizing mission and unleash, as in Gaza, an orgy of slaughter and destruction. We become drunk on violence. This violence makes us insane. We kill with reckless ferocity. We become the beasts we accuse the oppressed of being. We expose the lie of our vaulted moral superiority. We expose the fundamental truth about Western civilization. We are the most ruthless, efficient killers on the planet. This alone is why we dominate the wretched of the earth. It has nothing to do with democracy or freedom or liberty. These are rights we never intend to grant to the oppressed. Honor, justice, compassion, and freedom are ideas that have no converts. Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness, reminds us there are only people without knowledge, understanding, or feelings who intoxicate themselves with words, repeat words about and shout them out, imaging they believe them without believing in anything else but profit, personal advantage, and their own satisfaction. End quote. Genocide lies at the core of Western imperialism. It's not unique to Israel. It's not unique to the Nazis. It is the building blocks of Western domination. The humanitarian interventionists who insist we should bomb and occupy other nations because we embody goodness, although they promote military intervention only when it is perceived to be in our national interest, are useful idiots of the war machine and global imperialist. They lived in an Alice in Wonderland fairy tale where the rivers of blood we respond make the world a happier and better place. They are the smiley faces of genocide. They can watch them on their screens. You can listen to them spout their pseudo-morality in the White House and Congress. They're always wrong, and they never go away. In conclusion, many, many don't realize that maybe we're fooled by our own lies. But most of the world sees us, and Israel clearly. They understand our genocidal proclivities, rank hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. They see the Palestinians largely friendless, without power, forced to live in squalid refugee camps or the dysphoria, denied their homeland, and eternally persecuted, suffer the kind of fate once reserved for Jews. This perhaps is the final tragic irony. Those who were once in need of protection from genocide now committed. End quote, Chris Hedges. And that is his opinion. You could agree or disagree, but you're not going to hear Chris invited anywhere to debate. Now we're going to go to our first clip. 
And I've selected these clips very carefully to try to give you as broad a spectrum of insights as possible by credible people. The first, first one is called Genocidal Onslaught on Gaza Shocks Conscious of the World with Abby Martin. Abby I've known for a long time. She is quite simply one of the most courageous, honest, decent, and objective journalists in the, anywhere. In fact, she does a program every uh, Sunday, Saturday or Sunday here on PRN. Let's hear what she has to say because she went to Gaza. She lived in Gaza. She was there risking her life being shot at. And, uh, but let her tell her story, a story you have not heard, will not hear from Sean Hannity. After all, when Sean goes there, he goes as kind of a celebrity. And all the other politicians goes as celebrities. They're fully protected when they get there. And they never once go over to Gaza. Now, one of my old friends who passed many years ago, Stokely Carmichael, and others, when they went to Israel, they went to Gaza. They went to the West Bank. They went to be with the people. And I have a whole clip of them later talking about what they saw, what they experienced 40 years ago. Now to Abby Martin. And my question to the, the international community and Americans, how many kids? How many kids will it take for you to have your humanity? 3,000, 5,000, 10,000? How many babies do you need to see dead and pulled out of rubble for you to have a basic human empathy and dignity as a human being? How many kids? Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Israel's genocide in Gaza has shocked the world with an endless flow of videos and images of Palestinian children cut into pieces by American bombs, dropped by Israeli warplanes, deliberately intended to destroy a civilian population. Israeli leaders have said as much. Despite the explicitly genocidal rhetoric of Israeli officials, Western leaders continue to proclaim their support for Israel's right to defend itself. Over 2,000 Palestinian children have been slaughtered in the merciless carpet bombing of what amounts to a ghetto. Yet we're told by the mainstream corporate media that it's their fault for resisting their extermination. It's their fault for hating Israel. It's their fault, we're even told, because actually they bombed themselves. But this war on Gaza is different than past wars, not only in the scale of Israeli aggression, but in the reaction on the street from the Middle East to the United States. While Western media runs cover for Israeli atrocities, people are losing their jobs across various industries for speaking out. The suppression has never been this intense. Yet still, Israel is losing the narrative war. Most people want to see a ceasefire, and tens of thousands have protested across the U.S. to demonstrate their opposition to Biden's unconditional support for this genocide. Joining me to discuss Israel's genocidal onslaught in Gaza and how it has the potential to snowball into a catastrophic regional war, I'm joined by journalist Abby Martin, creator and host of The Empire Files. Abby Martin, welcome, because obviously we're going to be talking about the horrific genocide that's taking place in Gaza. And I just want to clarify, we are recording this before there has been a ground invasion, but obviously every day, every hour that could change. So if that has happened after this goes out, just keep that in mind as you watch this. Um, but anyways, Abby, I guess like 
There's so much to discuss. You've done so much journalism on the issue of Palestine, um, both on the ground and away. And I want to start off by asking you about your documentary, Gaza Frights for Freedom, which was released in 2019. And that was four years ago. And it's an excellent documentary for anybody who hasn't watched it. I encourage you to go check it out after you've watched this episode. I will include a link to it in the description. Um, and it's still making a huge impact to help people understand the situation that Gaza is in, which has obviously gotten like significantly worse in the last two weeks. But can you maybe start out by telling our audience what is Gaza Fights for Freedom about and why does it still matter as we witness the atrocities being committed against Gaza right now? Well, Rania, I think everyone has that light bulb moment. Like mine was the Gaza flotilla massacre in 2010 when Israeli commandos, you know, jumped on a ship in international waters and just executed, I think, like nine peace activists, one American citizen. And then, of course, the fog of war coming out of that attack was literally apologizing and whitewashing this massacre. And I think that that really woke me up to, wow, something is very, very wrong with what we're being told with this so-called Israel-Palestine conflict. And then, you know, everything compounded as I started working with Palestinians. And every time Israel would go on a, a, one of their bombardments of Gaza every couple of years, bombing people in essentially a caged area, my friends and colleagues that were Palestinian had to check in every couple hours to, to see if their families were dead or alive. Um, and it was just so harrowing and so horrifying Fast forward to the Great March of Return. This was, uh, I think, when Mike and I went to the occupied West Bank in 2017. Um, this was a year before Palestinians in Gaza decided to do this mass civil disobedience action where for 18 months they were going out every single Friday, um, tens of thousands at the beginning. And then it kind of whittled down um, into just thousands of people. I mean, this was a consistent determined action, uh, completely unarmed. Um, men, women, children, medics, journalists, all of these people went out. It was in no way directed or engineered by Hamas, this cartoonish depiction of Hamas, you know, stage managing everything in Gaza and taking away Palestinians agency. It was devised by a poet named Ahmed Artema, who just simply wanted to, to kind of do this peaceful action where he was drawing attention to their plight as refugees. And it was mostly symbolic to erect tents and basically call attention to their plight as refugees and show the international community, look, um, you know, we're still here generations later as besieged refugees, ethnically cleansed right from, you know, this partition where our ancestral lands are just right there. We can see them that we can't go to them. And, and I think we know what happened, Rania, is that Israeli snipers perched up on hilltops just took everyone out um, looking at people, civilians, through, through their scopes, um, their sniper scopes, and took out journalists, medics, children, disabled people. These are all egregious war crimes under the Geneva Conventions in a standing army like between armies an armed battle it's still egregious war crimes to target those protected groups so the fact that there were no militants shooting at israeli soldiers it was just simply civilians in mass and israeli snipers still picked them off one by one um, every couple hours you would hear the shot ring out and and people would just drop dead or drop injured and wounded and, and be brought back through the ambulances. And then, of course, they would target the ambulances. And when this happened, um, I, I just thought 
there's nothing that's going to be more egregious than this, right? I mean, Israel is committing such heinous war crimes for all the world to see. And there's no argument. There's no argument that they could give. There's no fog of war. There's no flipping the script here. Like, that's why we wanted to work with Palestinian journalists to tell this story, because I just thought, look, this is such a clear cut case of Israeli war crimes. It's incontrovertible. It's super proven. We base the entire framework of the movie around this UN report that was released. Everything's documented. But Rania just didn't matter. Um, and, And now, you know, 2023, that that was four years ago, as you mentioned, Israel's taking out as many people as they killed in the Great March of Return in like every couple hours. I can't keep up with the amount of civilians that are dying in mass because in the Great March of Return, it was 214 people that were picked off by Israeli snipers, 8,000 people shot with live ammunition. And now every couple hours, I'm hearing that hundreds of people you know, are, are dying every couple hours. And it's just like, you think that it can't get worse and it just does. And they made the Great March of Return about Israel, and they made it about the human shields, and they continued to pose as the victim even during that. And international law did nothing, and the UN sat back and did nothing, and the US continued to greenlight Israeli apartheid. And so the audacity, the hubris, and the arrogance of thinking that you can keep 2.3 million people in this caged ghetto and not expect anything to happen and so that's led us to where we are today. And even in the movie, it said that, you know, by 2020, the UN was saying this is an uninhabitable area. The lack of potable water. I mean, all of those things. <laughs> so that was four years ago. And it was already 50% of all diseases were because of toxic water. I mean, how is this sustainable? I mean, obviously, it's not. And now Gaza is dealing with a situation where it's just being completely leveled. You have Israeli leaders essentially saying we want to turn it into a parking lot. And I I just, honestly, at this point, it's like you have no words anymore because just watching image after image, I'm just not sure, like, what is the world's threshold for videos of Palestinian children in Gaza being chopped into pieces by American bombs delivered by Israeli jets? Like, obviously, over 2,000, and that's probably an underestimate because, like, like, right now they're talking about hospitals shutting down. They've run out of fuel. I mean, you think about like the babies and incubators lie that the U.S. spread in the lead up to the first Gulf War uh, in Congress, that famous lie. Uh, In this case, it's not a lie. Actually, babies and incubators in Gaza are very likely right now dying because Israel is denying fuel to hospitals. And I just don't understand how anyone, anyone can see images of children. I don't care who they are just any children being chopped up into pieces and dying needlessly being murdered and call that self-defense or standing by a civilized country or any of the insane rhetoric we've heard. I'm sorry. I'm going to probably get a little angry throughout this because this is really outrageous, but you know, speaking to that, you, you know, I've seen you posting messages from your contacts in Gaza where the situation just sounds completely apocalyptic I I actually just saw before we started recording that the Al Jazeera Arabic correspondent who is right now in Ramallah just got news that his family, his like wife and daughter and brother, I mean, I think it was his brother, but basically his whole family was killed in an Israeli airstrike, by the way, on the south in Khan Yunus, in the south where they were told to Mm -hmm. evacuate to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
everybody, everybody from Gaza has family being killed. I'm curious, what are you hearing from those you know on the ground in Gaza? Well, so all the people that I'm in contact with were people that we we did the documentary with. And so it's been it's been an apocalyptic nightmare unfolding for the last four years. And to see my friends and colleagues who want to remain anonymous because we already have seen 20 journalists be killed. Uh, you could argue whether they were targeted or not. We know Shireen Abu Akleh certainly was. And we know that the journalists during the Great March of Returns certainly were. So regardless, there is no like accountability for all of these journalists who are losing their lives during this onslaught. And so my you know, my colleagues do not want to be targeted. Um, and so that's why I'm, you know, not naming them. But one of them, who was our field producer through the entire movie, has been rendered homeless by Israeli bombs. He's been to this place three times. Then he moved into his parents' home. And then that's when they got the mass leaflets being dropped saying everyone needs to leave to the north. I'm sorry, to the south. <clears throat> and so they just aimlessly were fleeing to the south as bombs were dropping. We know that Israel was bombing these aid convoys that they then, then later claimed that Islamic Jihad booby-trapped the aid convoy um, of people fleeing. Absolutely barbaric, genocidal stuff. Rania, my other colleague who's there, he woke up this morning to the news that his brother had been martyred. His brother living in a house with 30 people. And I, I want to just read you... <laughs> Please. I want to read you what he said, and it, it it's sick. This is where they're at right now. He said, my brother was martyred in a bombing of his friend's house, and 30 people were killed, as usual, mostly women and children. My brother left behind his wife and two children, the youngest of whom is four months old. We're in a state of intense sadness and fear every moment that we will lose another person. He was like, some people in other countries different opinion about whether they're going to eat today or have a break. He was like, the ordeals that we're dealing with is if a bomb hits us, there's no doubt that it will destroy all of us. He was like, so we're trying to grapple with, do we stay together or do we separate so we don't all die together? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's insane that 40 miles away from this genocide, taking place that you have Israelis going to the beach, going out to eat, just living their lives, Rania. And you have our friends and brothers and sisters on the ground in Gaza deciding, hey, should we stick together so that if a bomb hits the house, we'll all die together? Or should we separate so that one of us will live on and perhaps tell our stories and take care of our infants who won't have a family anymore? I mean, just wrap your mind around how the decisions that are being made by people there. And this isn't even to mention the fact that food and water and electricity have been cut off, you know, because they're subhuman, they're animals in the words of these Israeli ministers and the U S doesn't care, right? Liberals don't care about this. Sarah Silverman was saying, Hey, we're at the point that why do these animals deserve water and electricity? So waterborne illnesses, foodborne illnesses, all of these things are happening. Aside from that, you mentioned babies. I keep thinking of formula. Babies screaming, starving to death. Not even the ones being bombed and beheaded with bombs. The ones who can't eat. The people on dialysis. I mean, there's no time to even talk about those victims. And there's no time to grieve the death and destruction that's happening aside from the heavy bombardment of Israeli bombs. And to hear every day from my, it's like, I don't even know what to say other than I will do my best to like share this information and hope that it will help humanize the plight of what is going on. 
Rania. And that is just when you put it like that, it's so insane to think about on top of everything you just described. There's this like worldwide gaslighting going on where it's your fault. You're bombing yourselves. You're basically all human shields for a terrorist organization that is the same as ISIS. It's your fault. You hate Israel. You're anti-Semites. You deserve this. And just by world leaders. And I mean, the, the reason I raise this, of course, is because, you know, you've been covering the issue of Palestine through your journalistic career. Um, and I, as all, I, you know, I think all of us who've been following this issue recognize there are the same Israeli talking points every single time, like a broken record. And they're all repeated ad nauseum by CNN, by MSNBC, by BBC, by all the mainstream Western channels. So I want to ask you to help our audience debunk some of these talking points. One in particular that I think is very insidious is that you hear the Israelis and Biden and Anthony Blinken and Ursula von der Leyen keep repeating every five minutes in tweets because they just have to remind us like every five minutes that they support this genocide and they stand with Israel. Um, and never to justify it, they keep repeating that Hamas is using Pal Hamas. They say Hamas doesn't represent Palestinians or their aspirations. In fact, Hamas is using them as human shields, and that's why Palestinians are dying. Therefore, Hamas is, is actually responsible for all the dead children that Israel is killing. And you've done, I think, a great job uh, basically debunking this entire, this entire claim. So how, how should people, how do you, at least, let's, let's ask you that, how do you respond to that claim as Israel inflicts its most vicious acts of violence against Gaza civilian population. How do you respond to the claim that Hamas is using Palestinians across Gaza as human shields? Yeah, no, it's a really good point because, and I want to go back to the Hamas equals ISIS. Well, in fact, they were saying Hamas is worse than ISIS yeah. um, because they started off with that. And that's why I think they wanted to just unload like aerial bombardment, um, it, similarly to what the U.S. and Russia did with ISIS and, you know, Syria and Iraq. And that was, you know, we we know that those airstrikes were taking out hundreds of civilians at a time. And there was kind of like this By the way, real quick, I just, yeah. real quick, I just want to say it actually like mainstream American media has reported that Israel has dropped more bombs. I, I, by the sixth day yeah. of this, Israel had dropped more bombs than the U.S. had in like a month of carpet bombing Raqqa. I just want to throw that, that in there. That is yes. crazy. That, that's a yeah. really, no, that, that's crazy because we saw the aftermath of the Raqqa bombing. I mean, it was like leveled. Mm -hmm. um, and there were hundreds of civilians that died. And it was kind of secondary to think of all the civilian casualties because ISIS was like so barbaric and so subhuman that, well, we just needed to do everything we could, could to take out ISIS. And that's what they wanted to cement in the first place. Um, but then I think people were seeing the horrors unfolding on the ground and Palestinians dictating their own reality through social media. And so it switched back to the old, tired, human shield talking point, which aside from just like picking a point, uh, picking apart that narrative, I mean, if you look at like the the swath of of the history of propaganda used um, toward American allies, and I'm sorry, from American allies toward our so-called enemies back all the way from World War II and beyond in Vietnam and Korea and Iraq and Libya. You can see that tired talking point being propelled by the mainstream media, whether it's the Viet Cong 
whether it's Gaddafi's, you know, civilians, whether it's Iraqi civilians, it's always they're going to use human shields, like basically anticipating there's going to be a large amount of civilian casualties, but they're all human shields for these crazy dictators or for these crazy genocidal maniacs. And so just know that it doesn't matter, you know, because they're the ones putting their civilians at risk. And so it's always been a racist, dehumanizing trope and a veil, like basically a veil to commit mass death and destruction. Um, and it's sick. And for some reason, it just sticks with Palestinians. Palestinians are continued to be called um, mindless human shields. The, their agency is completely taken away. And they're all just looked at as some sort of death cult who martyrs their own children. It is disgusting and it's sick. And let's look at the propaganda because Israel is basically saying everyone in the Gaza Strip is a human shield for Hamas because they elected Hamas in 2006. Well, they can't leave. So first and foremost, it's a situation of Israel's own creation, even if that were true. They are not allowing civilians to flee. It's the only place in the world that refugees can't even leave by boat if they wanted to. They're shot in the waters if they stray too far. They can't go into Rafah. They can't go into the Erez crossing um, because Israeli snipers will shoot to kill. There's like a, literally a no-go zone surrounding their entire partitioned land. So it's crazy that Israel's like, pretending that this is true when they've created the situation. So putting that aside, their actual evidence that they always put forward are literal cartoon infographics. They either release like images of aerial like infographics of Gaza with like red squares around them. And they're just like, here's a rocket launcher. See, and it's right next to this UN building. So naturally we have to blow up the shelter, right? Because this rocket launcher is over a couple streets away. And it's just always this red square on like a like an aerial shot of the street. It's like, okay, great. I'll take yeah. your word for it. Um, and then aside from that, they literally use infographics. I'll never forget in during the Sheikh Jarrah, um, horrible like ethnic cleansing going on in Sheikh Jarrah and the pogroms that were going on. And also during the Great March of Return, they were releasing infographics of just cartoon images of people standing on rooftops holding missiles and grenade launchers. And it's like, okay, that. Do you think that that's convincing anyone? <laughs> like, but, and, then, and then the argument completely falls apart when you look at the Great March of Return, because they were using that argument to justify shooting elderly people and disabled people and children and medics and, um, and journalists. And that, that's outrageously false. They were not human shields for anyone. There were no militants there. And so when you apply that logic just to that instance alone, Rania, the argument falls apart and their credibility is completely shot. And so we can't trust anything that they say. Everything Israel uses for their playbook has been debunked. And then if you apply the same logic to Israel, well, they're using human shields too. They have military bases in the yeah. middle of residential neighborhoods. They broadcast from densely populated areas. If Hamas targeted one of their military bases or one of their media towers, is there any doubt that that would be called a war crime? No, mm -hmm. the standard of international law should be applied the same. That, that's the whole point. There should be no bias at all. You should look at the facts and let the facts, um, you know, go where, they, go where they are. And unfortunately, there's a complete, not only reversal of the truth, but just a, a, a misapplied version of international law that somehow only applies to who Israel deems its enemies. And I'm sick of this whole Hamas run, Hamas led like narrative in the corporate media too, as if that again, takes away, strips Palestinian agency and pretends like Hamas has a gun to the head of Palestinians who are like lying 
about their situation or about the horrors unfolding on the ground. And it immediately makes people think that they can't trust the news coming out of like the Hamas run health ministry about civilians dead or the Al Arab, Arab hospital bombing. And it's just grotesque. And so what Israel purposely tries to do with the human shield thing and beyond is just create this fog of war. And what they're best at is deflecting and projecting what they do onto Palestinians. And like you said, Palestinians bomb their own hospitals. Okay, there's more to that in another hour. But the most important issues she discussed. Now we're going directly to a member of the Irish Parliament, Matt Carthy. A short discussion that is labeled Must Watch Address by Matt Carthy on Palestine. Ancora, let us be very clear. Hamas breached international law on the 7th of October. Hamas targeted innocent civilians in the most callous and inhumane manner, and their actions have been rightly condemned by right-thinking people across the world. But we should also be very clear. Israel has breached international law, not just on every day since October the 7th, but virtually every single day for decades. Israel occupies Palestinian land against international law. Israel blockades Palestinian territory against international law. Israel builds and expands illegal settlements against international law. Israel enforces an apartheid system that restricts the movements of Palestinians and denies their fundamental rights against international law. And Israel regularly and systematically attacks and kills Palestinian civilians against international law. So the question that must be answered by all of us in political life is this. How does the world respond to flagrant abuses of international law? When it comes to the horrendous war crimes of Hamas, the response was very clear and very consistent. World leaders queued up to say Israel has the right to defend itself. One after another repeated their words, the great and the good, including our government, Israel has the right to defend itself. Repeated in statement after statement, tweet after tweet, despite the full knowledge that those words have become contaminated. The words Israel has the right to defend itself means in practice that Israel takes that right as license to bombard civilians, to bomb schools, hospitals and other civilian infrastructure. And it has now been taken as license to enforce the displacement of one million people from one end of an open air prison to another. To deny food, energy, medical supplies to a besieged civilian population. To actually deny them water. To ensure that children, the sick, the disabled, the elderly will literally die of thirst. Israel has the right to defend itself has now become cover for Israel has the right to commit genocide right in front of our eyes. How come we never hear the words Palestine has the right to defend itself? Not when a humanitarian flotilla bringing essential supplies to Gaza is met with a military assault and the murder by Israel of nine unarmed activists. Not when Palestinians march in peaceful protests against a legal blockade and are met again with a military assault and the murder of 300 of them. Not after the countless bombings of Gaza by Israeli forces. Not even when Israel targeted and murdered four little Palestinian boys playing football on a beach. And not when Palestinians were dragged from their homes and forced to watch as those homes were destroyed to allow for new illegal Israeli settlements on lands that are clearly defined in international law as part of Palestine. 
Palestine and not after the countless offensive attacks by Israel against the people of Gaza or the West Bank have we or any heard anybody in this house or any Western leader utter the words Palestine has the right to defend itself. And why not? And by the way, I'm not asking you to say those words. And in fact, it's just as well you don't. Because we all know that the people of Palestine can't defend themselves. Not against one of the most powerful military forces in the, in the world that is backed up by even more powerful military forces. The truth is that the people of Palestine, just like the innocent people of Israel, don't need the international community to tell them that their leaders have the right to inflict more bombings, more pain, more suffering. They need the international community to say stop, to say release the hostages, to say stop the bombings, the siege, the slaughter. They need the international community to tell Israel to stop the blockade, stop the apartheid, stop the annexation, to stop the genocide. And they need countries, Tanisha, to lead the way. And Ireland should be one of those countries that leads the way. We know colonialism. We know oppression. We know conflict. But we also know conflict resolution. We know peace building. We know nation building. And because of what we know, what our history has taught us, our call tonight must be clear. Immediate, full and unequivocal ceasefires and a decisive international intervention that leads to negotiations and to a lasting and just peace settlement. And to at long last, to a free, sovereign and independent Palestine. And that's Matt Carthy. Now our final one for this hour is Israel-Hamas war. An ex-Israeli soldier says this government cannot defeat Hamas. But his understanding is interesting. Let's hear an Israeli soldier uh, talk about his perspective of the conflict. Uh, my Special Forces Infantry Unit went to the border. Um, the entire night sky was, was lit up with explosions, deafening explosions, as the Air Force and the artillery bombarded the village. We were going into a small village with the purpose of uh, identifying and demolishing a tunnel that was going into Israel. We were only a few kilometers in. We weren't very deep in. We were trying to secure an area for these engineers to demolish the tunnels. We pulled out. Um, and uh, right after we pulled out, the Air Force came and demolished, obliterated uh, almost the entire neighborhood that we were in. So you had your experience, uh, Benzi, in 2014. This is going to be altogether of a different magnitude, more civilian deaths, more threats to Israeli soldiers. I mean, it's, it's already multiple orders of magnitude worse. I mean, you know, something like three times as many Palestinians have already been killed uh, through these bombing campaigns uh, as there were killed in the entire 2014 uh, uh, war, and we haven't even began the, 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 the ground invasion. Um, Hamas is stronger. That's just a fact. Hamas is stronger, even though we fought them and, we, you know, I, 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 uh, I believed during that fighting and with our sacrifice and all the destruction that we wrought in Gaza, that we had dealt them a decisive blow. Uh, but that was just not true. Is it possible, do you think, to wipe out Hamas? Um, the Israeli government has said after this appalling terror attack, we will wipe out Hamas. Is that possible? I think the only way, I think this government is incapable of doing it unless there is a dramatic axiomatic shift 
uh, in our approach towards Palestinians. We approach towards Palestinians, they can just be controlled, we can just keep them indefinitely under military occupation, deny them rights, deny them freedoms, the same ones that we cherish for ourselves, they don't have. And it's not about security, it's about ideology. We're ideolog ideologically committed to controlling the entire land of Israel exclusively for the Jewish people. And uh, there will be many Israelis who simply want revenge on Hamas for this hideous attack. That will only strengthen them even if we dismantle and, and are able to defeat the, the, the physical terrorist organization Hamas, we will be strengthening the idea of violent resistance because the only way to defeat the idea of violent resistance is to create an alternative and to work towards an alternative, one that our government is fundamentally opposed to. So this government can't defeat Hamas. So you think it will, in effect, radicalize a gener another generation of, of young Palestinians? Uh, of course. Of course. We're just killing them, and we don't provide any alternative. We're keeping them under a debilitating siege. They're running out of fuel. They're running out of drinking water. What do you, what do you think? that you, you know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They've already proven that they can murder babies, and we're saying it's on them to save the lives of the, the, the Palestinian Infants in the in the NICU in the hospital. It's up to the, it's up to them. You think they care? They just murdered babies, and we're denying that we're creating this horrific hu human conditions. What do you think the people in Gaza are going to think about us after what we're doing now? We have to create an alternative. We want to defeat Hamas. We have to uh, turn the Palestinian public against them. But how do you do that in the light of the terror attack? Um, how do you do that? What is the process? Where is the process that uh, doesn't include Hamas? Where is the process? Well, we have to start force. We have to stop forcibly expelling Palestinians from their homes in villages in the West, throughout the West Bank. We have to crack down on settler violence, and we have to say out loud that we're committed towards a peaceful, negotiated solution with Palestinians, in which they achieve freedom, achieve independence, and achieve the 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 uh, the independence. Um, and rights that we cherish so dearly for ourselves. What are your fears for the next uh, few days and weeks? You know, I fear, um, I fear for, for Palestinian civilians who are being uh, relentlessly bombed. I fear for um, citizens of Israel who are uh, vulnerable to escalations on multiple fronts because of this, this war. I feel for uh, many, many friends uh, and, and, and loved ones are... Your brother's going yeah, in? I hope not. But, um, you know, uh, um, you know, obviously, um, this, uh, the, the tragedy is that no matter what we do, we won't be able to defeat the idea of, of, uh, that Hamas represents, the ideology that it represents of armed resistance, unless we try to create an alternative. And I really believe that this government is incapable of doing that. Benzi, thank you very much indeed. Sure thing. We're going to have to say goodbye to our WBA audience, but remember, this is a two-hour special with a whole lot more clips, and that starts when you go to the archives. Let me give you our archive number, 631-359-9463, 631-359-9463. If it's busy, which may be 716 805 6778 If you'd like to call in and respond, I'm going to go to PRN.live to continue up to the top of the hour. And remember, we can't play part two because we have regular scheduled programming in both PAI and PRN and other stations. 
And that's why you listen to the second hour on the archive. All right, 888-874-888 if you'd like to call in and share your points of view. The trouble is that lobbying groups and governments have given so much support to members of Congress that almost anything that Israel has for it, they'll be given without thinking about the consequences that is occurring now. And mind you, no one knows the exact number of fatalities. And and you'll hear that it could be 10,000. Well, we passed 10,000 over the weekend. And there was a massive bombing last night. So whole areas were just obliterated where people had no place to go. I mean, just imagine this. Imagine if you took 1.2 million people, that's just a little less than half the people, or a little over half the people in, in just Gaza, and you said, okay, all of you go out on this little narrow road, you got about 24 to 27 miles you got to go, and you've got... You've got donkey carts out there. You have complete congestion. You don't have fuel. A lot of cars ran out of gas. And they're all trying to get out. And they can't. But think of all the people that don't have a way of getting out. They're sick. They're, they're alone. And, uh, or they're incapacitated. There's no buses running people who can't walk out. <clears throat> Remember what Abby Martin was saying, and if you watch her documentary, you'll see that Israeli uh, sharpshooters, snipers, were looking at all these completely unarmed, non-Hamas-associated citizens of all ages walking towards the fence. They weren't going to break down the fence. They were walking towards the fence. It's a symbolic effort of, of re- their right of return. And uh, they would also shoot people in the knee and the ankles, making them permanently disabled. Many of them have to have amputations. But they don't have the prosthetics. They don't have the medical equipment and necessary supplies. That didn't matter. So all that matters now is the amount of propaganda from Lindsey Graham's and other people who are neocons, and they don't think through things. Either they don't have the intellect, or they have the intellect and choose just to be propagandists. So that's where we're at. I don't see any calls coming in. I'll just ask the studio in New York, do we have any calls? If we do, I'll take a quick one. If not, we will. No, we don't. We don't have any calls at this moment. So if you want to hear more of this, and it's hard to listen to, But it's important you do hear it, so at least whatever your position, ideological, political, ethnic, religious, at least you know, listen to all sides of a story before you make up your mind on something. Okay? Because haven't we seen time and again with Gaddafi in in Libya and Assad in Syria, neither one were guilty of any of the things they said. Those were all CIA plant stories. And look at their countries because what we did. And still are occupying the oil fields and stealing the oil on a daily basis out of Syria. We've been lied to nonstop because we demonize the other. And then it gives us a right to inflict any form of pain we want. And the average person, 
well, okay, they deserved it. No, they didn't. No, we're, we're not talking about those who should be brought to justice for the crimes against humanity they committed. Yes, bring them to justice. But innocent civilians shouldn't be just butchered. Um, the latest report I have is the guy said, oh, you know, it could be three times. No, right now, the closest estimate we have is that about 20,000 could be dead, which makes it almost 20 times. And also, when we come back, I'll talk about Herod's, one of the most respected newspapers in, in Israel, is saying that a lot of those 1,400 dead came from friendly fire from Israel itself. And there are people who were there in the kibbutzes who are saying this. So we'll play some clips of those as well. We're going to take a break and go on to our regular programming, or you can call that number and listen to part two. The number is 631-359-9463. Thank you all for listening, and have a nice day. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. I'd like to welcome you to a special presentation. Part one we just completed. Part two you're listening to on the archives. And I'm doing this because there's so much misinformation, disinformation, and generally about 95% of the media is covering only one side of the story. And they're not asking the hard questions. For example, proportionality. Let's just say that now we know from reports in the Israeli media, including the very famous and very objective newspaper, Herod's, that not all the dead on the first day uh, was from Hamas. We're now finding out from soldiers and witnesses and actual people living in the, the kibbutz area that flag, uh, these ships came in, these warships, helicopters, and they bombed houses that had hostages and civilians in them, as well as Hamas, killing everyone. And this is not the first time this has happened, and it's not an unusual circumstance. As you will hear in some of the interviews, the Israeli government's position is they don't want um, they don't want Hamas or any other person to get a hold of Israeli soldiers because the last time this happened, they had to trade one thousand of uh, Hamas's uh, soldiers who were imprisoned for one Israeli soldier. So they just go about, according to these reports, bombing, and if you happen to be an innocent civilian, you die. Also, we're now seeing that the people fleeing when the Hamas breached the fence and other terrorist groups came across, that they were, they were being shot by friendly fire, meaning Israel could not differentiate Hamas fighters from many of the civilians. And so a lot of them got shot. And you hear those stories. So how many people were actually killed? Well, there shouldn't have been any killed. Uh, so that is a crime against humanity, and those people responsible for planning and exercising that should be held to the highest standard of justice. But... Certainly it is not the 1,400, because there's a lot of those uh, who were killed in friendly fire. But it raises another question the media is not discussing. For example, right now, as I'm speaking, because the videos you're going to 
here in seed in this hour are are dated, meaning they might be a day old or a week old. But the the numbers exceeded ten thousand civilians killed, and they're estimating over half of those are children. That means five thousand more or less children have been killed, and they're killed in these collapsing buildings and hospitals that have been bombed. And yet, on one side, we're told the the rationale is, well, they're being used as human shields, or they didn't leave when they were told to leave. Okay. Where are they supposed to go when the border is closed? At Sinai. And and how are they supposed to get there? A lot of these people are invalids. A lot of these people are in hospitals. The hospital has said, we can't, you know, what do you do with a person who's come out of surgery? We have no ambulances. Ambulances have been destroyed. Hospitals destroyed. And uh, and even places that are supposed to be safe go south, they say. And now buildings are being bombed in the south. And one bomb killed over 30 members of one family, extended aunts, uncles were all hiding in one building. These are civilians in the south. They have no water. They have no food. They have no fuel. And some of the people are leaving with donkey carts, packing as much as they can in a little cart. And that's blocking traffic the whole way. A lot of people don't have petrol. They don't have fuel to get out in their cars. So you see parked cars, then they got to squeeze through this one road. And how do you get a million, 300,000 people out of harm's way with no help, no food, no fuel, no water? How do you do that? And then where do you take them? Or is the whole idea just to destroy the entire Gaza area and push them into the Sinai and then build a tent city for them? one of the hottest places in the area. So imagine what it would be like to live as a refugee in a tent. So these are the issues that the mainstream media has chosen not to discuss. Also, at what point do you say we've killed enough of the Palestinians to satisfy our sense of righteous indignation about the innocent Israelis who were killed, and indeed there were innocent Israelis who were killed, should not have been, by any measure, that's wrong. And there doesn't seem to be a number that's acceptable. Could it be all of them? Could a million three hundred thousand deaths be enough? So when you don't have those discussions, and you don't have anyone coming in to say, stop, they're suggesting they stop. But who is going to stop? Who's going to stop this? No one. Instead, all countries like Great Britain and France and the United States and Canada, etc., are continuing to supply additional ammunitions. So, and as anyone in the media, from the New York Times to uh, any to the BBC, are they having honest, open discussions, giving equal opportunity for uh, Arab? historians to show how all this evolved and what is the likelihood of a group of people who've been kept isolated, imprisoned in a, by any measure, an apartheid uh, state of living, they get angry. And what would anyone in any other country do if they were in similar circumstances? 
What would happen in America if you took, well, mind you, Gaza's, Gaza's got over 2 million people, but also the West Bank has a couple million people. So you're talking about a lot of people who have no freedoms, no rights. So what do you do? What do you expect? Why hasn't this changed? Why has everybody left this part of the equation out of discussion? I'm simply asking this. I want to see peace for all Jewish people and all Palestinian people and all Christian people living in this area of the world. Is it possible? Yes, it is. They rebuilt completely and built viable communities where people had jobs, living wages, no unemployment, no poverty, and, and, and freedom to live their lives as they see fit, as long as they respect the rights of the other? Yes, that's possible, but not when the people in power don't want that for their own ideological or political reasons. And yet, we continue to fund one. We've given over $330 billion to Israel, and yet they're still reliant, after all these decades, upon the United States. Well, if they didn't put all that money into intelligence, and in warfare, and they put it into their civilian infrastructure and, and jobs, it'd be a different outcome. But it's not. So you're going to see a series of back-to-back-to-back-to-back videos, but each one tells a story. Each one. And each one will have someone explaining something. You'll have Jews, you'll have people who grew up Zionist who believe in Zionism and who but also see that what's happened to the Palestinians is not right and should change. You'll see Israeli soldiers talking about how no matter what they tell you, you're not going to destroy an idea. You can kill people, but you know, you kill all the Hamas leaders, but then there'll be another group to take its place. That's always the case. That was the case with ISIS, with al-Nusra, with al-Qaeda with the Mujahideen, and it's no different here. So I've selected a lot of different topics and people based on creating pieces to the puzzle that the mainstream media has avoided. Now to these clips. Okay, it feels important to say this. I am not pulling my perspective on Israel-Palestine out of my ass, okay? I'm not just guessing that Israel is committing a genocide against Palestine. I have studied and researched this. I have bona fides and I will share them. First of all, I'm a Jewish woman. I was raised by a Zionist family. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. My family talks about our spirit of resistance and resilience constantly. Desiring goodness from the nation of Israel is in my blood and still I can see that this Zionist state is vicious, violent, and evil. If someone who was raised by a Zionist family, by people who believe that Israel has the right to exist and that it is our salvation. If I can overcome my pro-Israel bias and learn about this conflict, so can you. And frankly, I should not be calling it a conflict, it's a genocide. So when I was in college around 2012, 2013, a bunch of my friends and loved ones started going on birthright trips. And I knew enough then to ask the question when they got back from their birthright trips, what about Palestine? And when these people I love, admire, and respect started talking about Palestinians and using language like terrorists, I knew I had to learn more. I also knew that I wanted to go on birthright and I was nervous about being brainwashed by the trip and I should have been nervous. 
So before I went on Birthright, I decided at my small liberal arts school in Massachusetts to get a well-rounded perspective, educational perspective on Israeli-Palestinian politics. I took four courses, Suffering and Evil in the Jewish Tradition, the Jewish Experience, Middle East Politics, and Arab-Israeli Conflict. I also took international and comparative politics courses that often brought up Israel and Palestine in comparisons to, for example, apartheid South Africa. And by the time I finished my ample coursework on the subject before I went on birthright, I was already pro-Palestine. Because once you are in the literature, once you are in the research, not the media stories about this, not the pro-Zionist rigmarole on CNN and MSNBC, once you are in the literature and the data, this isn't a debate. This isn't a question. People talk about Israel-Palestine like it is incredibly complicated, and I reject that premise. It is not. We know that anti-Semitism exists globally, right? We know that Jews are not the most beloved population in the world. We know that Britain has a colonial history and they have taken on colonial projects even through the 20th and 21st centuries. Essentially, Britain already wanted to colonize Palestine. So did the United States. And at the end of World War II, Britain and the US got to talking and they thought, hmm, who do we want to exploit for military labor someplace that is surrounded by brown people so that we can rape and pillage land that we don't currently have access to. Where's one part of the globe we haven't effectively colonized yet? And there was Palestine. And Britain had been trying to colonize Palestine already. And so this was passed off to Jews who had just survived the Holocaust as a gift. Here we're granting you this parcel of land so that you and your progeny can exist in peace and not be violated anymore. Congratulations. Except that land already belonged to someone. Palestinians were already living there. And the US and Britain didn't give a shit about the well-being of Jews. They didn't care. This wasn't a gift for Jews. This was always intended to be a trap of you do our military labor for us. We'll put you here and we'll grant you this parcel of land that already belongs to someone that there are already people on. And in return, you will rape and pillage that land for us and we'll just all share in the wealth. And it might be a good idea too, if like your entire population were to, you know, have conscripted military service so you can really defend that land that is yours. Totally, totally yours, bucko. And if you see who has emerged as the political leadership of Israel over the last few generations, this won't surprise you. This insidiousness will not surprise you. This is how you get Benjamin Netanyahu, someone who absolutely agrees to the premise of Israel as a Zionist ethno-nationalist state, who says we are here for one thing and one thing only, is to get, garner as much wealth from this earth that we have, as much tourist property from this plot of land, convert it to dollars, and build up a military so mighty, a military apparatus so great that we wind up producing the world's weaponry. Yes, we have mined this land, and we have used the land to give you war machinery so that we can all murder each other a thousand times over. And to the people already living here, well, we'll murder them too. I took basically a semester and a half of college courses on this, and I know in my bones that what Israel is doing right now is a genocide. It's evil. What they've been doing for the last 75 years is a genocide. It is drip violence, slow violence, protracted harm. It is meant to exhaust the civilian population of Palestine. It is meant to exhaust all Palestinians out of their will to fight. And all the benefit, the wealth garnered from that land goes to the primary stakeholders 
not the Palestinian people to whom the land originally belonged. Have you seen this video? Inside, we find, we found uh, eight babies burned in this corner. An Israeli soldier conducts an interview in front of a destroyed home of a kibbutz. He says Hamas fighters burned babies and then beheaded them. But this is all a lie. And I'm going to prove it to you using Israeli media. Yes, that is right. Israeli media. But first, let's ask an important question. How did the concrete walls of this home behind the soldier turn into rubble? Fires burn wood and other flammable items. They do not collapse concrete structures like this. Children in the same room, then someone come and kills them all. 15 girls and teenagers that put in the same room, 300 grenades and it's over. This is a massacre. Now the Israelis want you to believe that Hamas fighters did this, but we know that they were only armed with machine guns and small grenade launchers. That doesn't cause this level of damage. So then how did they destroy concrete homes like this? The answer Answer is they didn't. The Israelis did. What? That is shocking. But why? And how would the Israelis do that? Well, Israeli media has all the answers. They interviewed the IDF soldiers who responded to the Hamas attack, and they learned something shocking. The IDF was struggling to handle the Hamas fighters. Tuval Escapa, or however you pronounce his name, a member of the security team for Kibbutz Bieri, set up a hotline to coordinate between Kibbutz residents and the Israeli army. He told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that as desperation began to set in, the commanders in the field made difficult decisions, including shelling houses on their occupants in order to eliminate the terrorists along with the hostages. These reports indicate that orders came down from the military's high command to attack homes and other areas inside Israel, even at the cost of many Israeli lives. According to Haaretz, the army was only able to restore control over Bieri after admittedly shelling the homes of Israelis who had been taken captive. The price was terrible. At least 112 residents were killed, according to the paper. Others were kidnapped. Now, much of the shelling in Bieri was carried out by Israeli tank crews. As a reporter for the Israeli Foreign Ministry-sponsored outlet I-24 noted during a visit to Bieri. Small and quick homes bombarded or destroyed, children's toys lying around, well-maintained lawns of grass ripped up by the tracks of an armored vehicle, perhaps a tank, perhaps a tank, perhaps a tank. In other words, the IDF, in an act of desperation, decided to just kill everyone, including hostages. This is their words, not mine. In fact, Yasmin Porat, an attendee of the Nova Music Festival, who fled into the kibbutz, told Israeli radio that when Israeli special forces arrived during a hostage standoff, they, quote, eliminated everyone, including the hostages, because there was very, very heavy crossfire. <laughs> כי היה שם חילופי ירי מאוד מאוד קשים, חילופי אש מטורפים, אפילו שני פקזים של טנק שירו לתוך הבית, שזה בית קיבוצי קטן, זה לא איזה רואים את זה בחדשות. She goes on to describe how Hamas militants tied her partner's hands behind his back. She saw her partner lying on the ground, still alive. She went on to say that Israeli security forces killed him and other hostages as they opened fire on the remaining militants inside, including with tank shells. <laughs> This is why you see large bits of shrapnel and bullet holes in the walls of destroyed kibbutz homes. It's why you see homes turn into rubble. And sadly, it's why you find severely burnt bodies of Israeli hostages.
but there's more. The IDF also used Apache attack helicopters. In an interview with Israeli media outlet Mako, an Apache pilot admitted that many of the cars he fired rockets at contained hostages. But wait, there's even more. Israeli security forces also opened fire on fleeing Israelis whom they mistook for Hamas gunmen. A resident of Ashkelon named Danielle Rachel described nearly being killed after escaping from the Nova Music Festival when it was attacked by militants. As we reached the roundabout at a kibbutz, we saw Israeli security forces, she recalled. We held our heads down because we automatically knew they'd be suspicious of us in a small beat-up car from the same direction the terrorists were coming. Our forces began shooting at us. Lastly, let's discuss how an IDF commander ordered an airstrike on his own position. The very first target the Palestinian fighters attacked was the Erez checkpoint. The attack was so fierce that the IDF commander, Avi Rosenfeld, in an act of desperation, he called for an airstrike on his own position. The IDF bombed their own base in order to kill the Palestinian militants. So what should we take from all this? Do we absolve Hamas of their actions on October 7th? Of course not. None of this would have happened had they not attacked. Now, whether or not they have the right to resist occupation and apartheid with the use of force is a topic for another video. But the point of this video is to highlight how the IDF's poor response and performance led to the deaths of their own people. As several Israeli hostages have already made clear, the Palestinian militants were kind to them despite the aggression. And as the Nova survivor Yasmin Porat put it, she believes the militants didn't want to kill them. She believes their goal was to take them back to Gaza as hostages. The entire point of the attack seems to be the capturing of Israelis as hostages in order to trade them for thousands of Palestinian political prisoners. And in the chaos that ensued, many people lost their lives. Now, some people say, who cares how it went down? People died, babies died. Is that not awful? Well, of course it is. But the reason we have to cut through Israeli propaganda is because it's being used to justify acts of genocide in Gaza. Israelis believe deep down to their core that their babies were beheaded and that their women were raped and tortured before being killed. And this simply isn't true. And even with Israeli media reporting the facts, they may never change their minds. But the rest of the world needs to know the truth because it is the world that has given Israel the green light to commit acts of atrocity in Gaza. And there's growing concern of an escalation that may erupt into a greater regional conflict. So share this video and help spread the facts. The world deserves to know the truth. And without you, that It'll never happen. RIP to all those who lost their lives, especially the thousands of innocent children in Gaza, incurring the wrath of a misled population. Free Palestine. What would you do if you were sitting at your home and a foreign military knocked down the door, broke in, threw your furniture across the length of the street, beat up your mother, imprisoned your father, and told you that your house is now theirs. What would you do if you were told that for the rest of your life you were going to have to live in a cage, be seized? What would you do if someone shot and killed your brother for simply being who they are? Me and my brothers are scared for each other, so we always try to be together because if we die together, that will be the best thing because we can still see each other when we go to heaven. For decades, the Israeli regime has presented itself on the international stage as a victim. And to Palestinians, the image that was communicated to us is that of a completely different reality. The Israeli regime does not waste an opportunity to intimidate us, to instill fear within us. There is this strong man image, not only to intimidate us, but to reassure the Israeli society, who frankly needs our suffering in order to feel safe, needs images of our misery, of our bloodied and bruised young people to feel safe 
Growing up Palestinian in occupied Jerusalem, it feels like you have a police officer in your bed and a police officer on your couch and a police officer in your kitchen. There is so much surveillance of every aspect of your life, be it your social life, your political thought, your activities at school, your activities on the street. They are telling us if we dare even think to resist, we are going to be clamped down on. You grow up in Palestine and you hear about the Nakba, which is the mass displacement of the Palestinian people at the hands of Zionist militias that would later form today's Israeli military. But the Nakba is not in the past tense. It's not a tragedy that once passed that we commemorate today, but it is in fact ongoing. For 75 years, the Israeli government has worked to ensure we no longer existed. The homes they demolished, the villages they depopulated, children they kill and imprison is the evidence of this. The material evidence is on our bodies. I know this firsthand because when I was 11 years old, a settler organization backed by the Israeli military broke into our house. One of a few organizations that are registered as charities, either in the UK or in the United States, that collaborate with the Israeli government to take over Palestinian houses all over occupied Palestine. In 2009, I was coming home from school to find all of our furniture scattered across the length of the street. I saw that my grandmother had been hospitalized. This this is my grandmother. I live in there were dozens and dozens of soldiers and that the settlers had taken over half of our house. Ten years later, they came back to take over the rest of our house and the rest of our neighborhood. Yaqob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the point? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. You are stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. It's quite an absurd situation to find yourself in, right? American or British nationals who are often fleeing fraud charges or sexual abuse charges who come to occupy Jerusalem to squat in our houses as if they are there by divine decree, as if God is some kind of real estate agent. There's only one sovereign body here. There's only one people that have a connection to this land. There is no such thing as a Palestinian people, no such thing as a Palestinian state, and there's no such thing as any sovereignty by anyone except the Jewish people here. Living on the brink of displacement almost distorts your sense of time. Your entire perception of the world and your reality becomes wrapped up in these court hearings and in these settler campaigns and these harassments and these police raids. And it's not just the psychological and emotional damage, it's the financial damages, it's the loss of time. It's living your entire life without having any agency almost. My whole childhood revolved around going to the court hearings and having my father come back from the court hearings and thinking when they would finally come and take over the house and if we were able to buy ourselves some more time. You never knew if that day would be the last night you ever sleep in your bed. I remember we would go to the court hearings and as the lawyers and judges deliberated, we would whisper in each other's ears shards of what we thought they said. It's almost like being a zebra at the mercy of a jury of hyenas. My grandmother used to say, if the judge is your enemy, to whom do you complain? The judge himself is a settler, and the court is a settler court, built on top of Palestinian land, and the laws are settler laws that were enacted to facilitate and bureaucratize and legalize the process of your own ethnic cleansing. The fact that there are Palestinians who can smell the humidity of the sea from their kitchen window 
shadows, but can never go to the sea because there are dozens of checkpoints that separate them from it, is violence. The fact that there are Palestinian kids in Lebanon, in refugee camps, who listen to their grandparents detail their past lives in Jaffa, in Yaffa, in Haifa, in Nazareth, who look at those photographs and yearn to visit, but can never visit, is within itself violence. There are 5.3 million Palestinian refugees in refugee camps today who long to return to their homeland, and their exile is within itself violence. Our ability to remain steadfast on our land is a form of resistance. The fact that we get sent dozens and dozens of settlers who get salaries to sit in our front yards, to terrorize us, to make our lives a living hell. The fact that we have to deal with police brutality at all times. The fact that we have to deal with a myriad of laws and laws that are there to displace us, to ethnically cleanse us, to erase us, to silence us, to put us in jail. And yet we are able to continue is amazing. People like the word resilience, but I think we're very stubborn. And our ability to be steadfast and to stay where we are and our ability to cope and deal with the horrors that none of these Americans or British nationals that spend their lives defending would tolerate living under for one second. All of these defenders of apartheid, all of these defenders of Israeli settler colonialism, if they had to come and live in our reality for one split second, they would not bear it. British politicians, American politicians, German politicians, they are not mere supporters of Israeli colonialism in Palestine, they are partners. Of course, they are not going to talk about Palestinians' right to self-determination the same way they are not going to talk about Palestinians' right to resist or Palestinians' right to defend themselves. It's the same reason why they see no issue in talking about a nuclear state's right to defend itself from an unarmed population as though that makes any sense. It is absurd that the world today has been duped to believe that one of the most lethal armies in the world, one of the most highly funded armies in the world, a nuclear state, is somehow defending itself against a population of refugees that are kept in an open air prison, that are kept surrounded by a nine meter high concrete wall that swallows their land and tears their families apart. People hear the word colonialism and they think of something that is long gone in the past and they don't realize that it exists in the present tense in my front yard, in my neighborhood, on my street. There are Palestinian villages that today are being uprooted to be replaced by settler towns. There are Palestinian roads and cemeteries that are being desecrated to be replaced by military outposts and police departments. Colonialism is not something that the world has rid itself of. It is alive and well and eating at the land in Palestine. When we think of colonialism, all of us have a moral clarity. We know that it's bad, we outright reject it. And yet when we look at colonialism in Palestine today, this is a complicated issue, this is a nuanced issue, this is a touchy topic, it's a sensitive topic, we're not allowed to talk about it because it might ruin my career prospects. But need I remind you, across history, opposition to atrocities has not been met with applause. People who opposed injustices, who opposed colonialism, who opposed slavery, were not met with congratulations and red carpets and applause and awards. In fact, they were targeted and attacked and censored and smeared and persecuted. It is not easy to be on the right side of history. It takes courage. Ignorance is not the problem. It is inaction. Everything I've said here today has been said by hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Palestinians before me. And it is about time that something is done about the 75 years of Israeli settler colonialism in our lands. It is about time that we move on from trying to debate something so clearly indefensible.
and to try to create some justice for the Palestinians that are living today. It has gone on for too long and we deserve this justice within our lifetime. It's easy to look at people like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, and think of them as courageous icons who must be respected. What is difficult is looking at an injustice as it happens in real time and deciding that you want to take a moral stance, that you want to be on the right side of history. Those of you watching this today have a chance to be on the right side of history. But the question is, are you going to take it? It's time for us to center Palestinian voices instead of completely coddling and uplifting the voices of Israeli politicians. Palestinians who live under occupation day in and day out have all of the analysis and the insight necessary. It's time for journalists to start doing their jobs by centering Palestinian voices instead of being stenographers and state secretaries for the Israeli regime. Not a proper Jew, the wrong sort of Jew, self-hating Jew, I was called that for the first time when I was 19 years old at university, where I made a speech in defense of a pro-Palestinian motion. And it was in the Jewish Telegraph. And they front-paged it, this self-hating Jew. She must hate herself when she looks in the mirror. I was 19 years old. I've had people phone me up and say, we're going to put you in a wheelchair. We know where you are. We're outside your door. Probably the worst incident was when I was with my sister at a meeting about anti-Semitism with all Jews on the panel. And people were shouting at us, capos, capos. You're called traitor Jews, capos. Capo was a Jewish inmate of a concentration camp who collaborated with the authorities. We're talking people who collaborated in annihilation of their own people. So it's a pretty bad thing to be called. And it's Jews calling other Jews. It's not nice. As a Jew on the left, who is intensely anti-racist and intensely aware of what anti-Semitism is and how dangerous it is, to be called an anti-Semite oneself is about as low as it gets. It's a bit like being accused of paedophilia or something. I cannot really think of anything worse. And it undermines the fight against real anti-Semitism. This is one of the most frightening things for me. People have been weaponizing accusations of anti-Semitism for political ends. The fact that that is going on seriously undermines and endangers our chances of dealing with genuine anti-Semitism, which is a real threat in our society. One of the biggest problems we face is the treatment of our community as if it was just one monolithic block. This is the typical trope of all forms of racism. The Jewish community is not one undifferentiated thing. Its opinions vary, just like every other section of the community. And we find it deeply disturbing that the whole community is treated as one. A lot of us are anti-Zionists and people need to realize that going back generations, Zionism was not the creed followed by all Jews, far from it. Marek Edelman, leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943, said that Jews should always be with the oppressed and never with the oppressor. I mean, for a section of the population whose history, much that's magical and wonderful, but so much that is to do with persecution, the fact that people with that history should identify with the oppressed in every setting seems self-evident to us. And that's where our support for justice for Palestinians comes in. We are identifying with the oppressed. And for anybody to suggest that it is the Israeli state which represents the oppressed in that conflict is pretty short-sighted and misguided. Stop all arms trade with Israel now! Jeremy Corbyn was the reason that 
more than 300,000 new people flocked into the Labour Party at the end of 2015 and soon after. To have somebody leading that party who was in solidarity with the oppressed against the oppressor consistently throughout his 30 plus years as a member of parliament was just such a breath of fresh air. Somebody who clearly wanted to transform society who really wanted to tackle privilege and inequality in society. It was a hopeful time for all of us and it was a project that we thought worth fighting for. And it needed defending because all those people who have a vested interest in putting a negative to everything positive that Jeremy said and did. They were mobilising against him and what he represented. One of the most ludicrous allegations against Jeremy Corbyn was that he exhibited anti-Semitism in chairing a meeting in 2010 in Port Carlis House where the main speaker was a Holocaust survivor from the Netherlands called Hayo Meir. I was at that meeting and what Hayo did was to put on a screen comparisons between the treatment of Palestinians in the occupied territories and the treatment of Jews in areas occupied by the Nazis. And there were uncanny and very unnerving similarities between the way these two communities were treated by the occupying powers in each case. I saw in Auschwitz that if a dominant group wants to dehumanize others, so as the Nazis wanted to dehumanize me, this dominant group must, must first be dehumanized in, in a way themselves by diminishing their empathy due to, to propaganda and, and indoctrination in order to be able to be as cruel as some were. Okay? But the same holds, holds nowadays for, for Israel. The most shocking thing to me is the portrayal of that meeting as somehow despicable because we saw a Holocaust survivor comparing his experiences with what he could see happening to Palestinians. What was horrifying about that meeting was that there were a bunch of really intolerant, bigoted, aggressive, bullying, pro-Israel campaigners in that room who shouted Hayo down. It went on for a long time and lots of us in the audience was, was sort of saying to Jeremy, can you please call the authorities to get these people out? They are harassing and intimidating an 80 plus year old Holocaust survivor. The meeting was pretty well destroyed by them, to be honest. Eventually, the authorities did have to be called. It was, by the way, a Holocaust memorial event, which was commemorating other forms of of oppression as well. So there were speakers from uh, traveller communities, for example, who we hardly got to hear because Hayo Mayer was interrupted so often by these vociferous hecklers. It, it was intimidating, it really was, to be there. I remember it vividly. Any criticism on the policies of Israel is hampered and made impossible by a terrible trick and, and crime of Israeli propaganda, that any criticism on the politics of Israel comes out is induced by anti-Semitic feelings. It's really important that we don't forget to talk about freedom of speech. We are being no-platformed, we are being cancelled, we are being denied the freedom to express legitimate points of view. People who claim to care about civil liberties, human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press and so on. All those people should be up in arms about what's been happening 
to Jeremy Corbyn and his associates in the Labour Party. So far they're silent. There are so many people who have just ceased to care about truth and facts. This is very hard to counter when the mainstream media themselves do not show respect for actual truth and actual facts in some cases. The media has totally sidelined and ignored left-wing Jews. Not only left-wing Jews, eminent Jewish scholars who have written extensively on the subject of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and demonstrated that the definition that is being pushed to define what is anti-Semitic is untrustworthy, faulty, actually dangerous because it conflates being Jewish with being a supporter of Israel, being Jewish with being a Zionist. One of the most important Jewish academics who has spoken on this and been ignored is actually the American academic Kenneth Stern, who wrote the original document upon which the IHRA definition is based. And he has said on a number of occasions in writing, in letters to Congress in the States, I abhor the way this definition that I drafted to assist data collection is being used to suppress free speech. That was not the purpose that it was designed for. I abhor the way it is being deployed in universities to prevent people who have a certain view about Palestine and Israel from expressing it. There should be no question that Israel and Palestine, as contentious as that is, should be an ideal subject for getting students to think about how do you deal with the competing narratives and competing histories, how do you look at identity, uh, how do you look at the equities and so forth, rather than just feed them into something said about Israel that's anti-Zionist, that's anti-Semitism, that ends the matter. It should be the beginning of the questions, not the end of it. Anthony Lerman former director of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, has written extensively on this subject. Do you ever hear of these people being called to, to be interviewed on any mainstream organization? Never. And all the work that they've done is completely ignored. As a college professor, I'm also concerned about Jews that are anti-Zionist. And they're left out in the cold here and in fact made targets. We have uh, websites that go and hunt them and put dossiers on there. I think this will only encourage that type of activity. You can have an organisation like the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, which was one of the instigators of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission report into Labour Party's handling of complaints about anti-Semitism, quoted over and over again as if it were a leading authority, whereas in fact it was created in 2014 during the Gaza conflict. And these people are quoted over again. Type Campaign Against Anti-Semitism into Google and you will get innumerable media references type in Anthony Lerman or Kenneth Stern and you'll get a few learned dissertations here and there and virtually nothing in mainstream media. We look back at the history of oppression and pogroms that my grandparents had to flee, came to this country, settling into a host community where you know that you are not treated as uh, equal or you're treated as weird and odd and you have a funny accent. Just to, to become part of that and to join in the resistance against fascist movements, Cable Street, trade unionism. So many Jews were active in the trade union movement, still are. So many Jews were active, going back to South Africa again, who supported the ANC. Looking at the civil rights movement in America where so many Jews were on the front line. So that is our tradition. That's why we've adopted that slogan about being with the, the oppressed and never with the oppressor 
because there are great Jewish traditions that we should be hanging on to. Not this lining up with the establishment, helping to destroy a movement for justice and peace and decency. We know what side we are on. We're with the people who want justice and peace and decency. No, there has to be some hope. And I think if you look at the situation of young Jews in this country, but particularly in the United States, there's a great movement called If Not Now. Those young people are looking askance at the establishment figures who continue to support injustice and to remain silent in the face of it. And that we're not going to stand for that any longer in this country too whether it's Jewish people or Muslim people or people of no faith, people in the Labour Party, people outside the Labour Party are going to start to stand up for what is right and to get themselves organised, to mobilise, to organise, to act. Because my God, we've got a Covid crisis to fight. We've got the planet to save. You know, we've got a free, we've got freedom of expression to fight for. And we've got Palestinian rights to fight for. So let's get on with it. I lost 30, 30 members of my family in two days. Half of my family is gone. Every time I talk to my mom, she tries to tell me her final goodbye. She tells me, I miss you. I, I really want to be able to hug you again. And I tell her, Mama, why are you not strong? Come on, you're going to hug me again. And I close the line and I cry for two hours. I cry at how unjust this world is. I cry at how the world does not see my humanity. I cry at how silent the world is. Not only silent, but complicit in war crimes and massacres that are being committed against me and my people. No one is safe in Gaza. I don't know if my family is going to make it or my friends. I don't know who's next. I don't know. And I don't want to know. I just want it to stop. I just want to wake up from this nightmare. Everything started on Saturday where I lost my best friend, the friend that I would call whenever I needed to cry or whenever I needed to share good news. Ibrahim and I covered the 2022 aggression on Gaza. He was the person who would shoot my videos and I was the reporter. His dream was to become a world-renowned photographer. In the morning, he texted the group chat of our friends and he said, the situation is escalating, I'm going to the office. So I texted him privately and I said, Ibrahim, please take care. My messages didn't go through to Ibrahim. I kept being worried and I kept trying to reach him, but I couldn't. My colleague said that Ibrahim is missing. And it's been 10, 10 days and I feel like I just lost him like two minutes ago. Like, I still don't believe it's real. I, I genuinely don't believe it. I just feel like I'm in a long nightmare and I'm not, I'm not waking up, you know? Um, he told me in, in the 2022 aggression, he told me, Yara, you're going to be the next Shirin Abu Aqli. They killed her, but you're our Shirin Abu Aqli. Please don't ever give up journalism. And he told me, we'll report every aggression side by side. And I genuinely thought we would, you know, but I didn't know that Israel would just kill him, just like they did with Shirin Abu Aqli, just like they did with Yasser Murtaja. Ibrahim became a journalist in the first place because he was so inspired by Yasser Murtaja and he wanted to carry on his message. And I don't know, I, I never imagined that it lose Ibrahim. He was so young, he was only 21 years old. He was only 21 years old. I wish you can give me more time to talk about every single member of my family who was killed in detail and tell you about their dreams, their ambitions, what they wanted to be and what they've done in life. I want to tell you about my eldest uncle. He had dementia. He barely remembered anything about his life, but he was always smiling. He was telling me that he loved me every time he saw me. 
I want to tell you about the children. In my uncle's house only, eight children have been murdered. Those children, I have so many memories of them. I remember them calling me and telling me, Yara, can you please come for a sleepover? Yara, we want to do something with you. I used to love babysitting children, so I used to babysit them whenever I went home. My cousin, who was murdered yesterday, she was a bride. She was supposed to get married next month. She literally prepared everything. She even picked her wedding dress. She's been so excited for her wedding and she's been doing it for months and months and everything's gone just like that. My cousin and her children, her four children, they were Swedish nationals. They were visiting Gaza and then, you know, they got trapped and they couldn't leave. They're Swedish nationals. Yeah. And they were killed. How are these terrorists? How is my family that I grew up with my whole life, people who taught me how to love, people who taught me how to live, how are these people just killed in, in one second? They're gone. And there's so many. I, I even feel guilty talking about my family and not the more than 3,000 Palestinians who have been killed in the last 10 days. I feel guilty because every single one of the 3,000 was not a number. Every single one of the 3,000 had a story. They were journalists. They were doctors. They were teachers. They were dreamers. They were, they were so much. They were humans after all. They were humans. They had dreams and ambitions. I don't even have time to grieve my family. I don't have time to, to cry or talk about them. I have to report and I have to work and I have to educate the West and I have to tell them why they shouldn't be asking me if I should condemn Hamas or not, but they should be asking me about Israel and about what Israel is doing. They shouldn't ask me and dehumanize me when I'm a Palestinian journalist, not a spokesperson of, uh, of any political party. They should ask me about the 30 members of my family who are not militants, not a group, not part of any group. They should be asking me these questions. I just want everyone to know this is not an Israel-Hamas war as Israel portrays it to be. Let's imagine a world where Hamas does not exist. Imagine the West Bank, you know, Hamas is not in control there. What has been happening in the West Bank? There's apartheid, there is military detention of minors, there is torture, there's killing of Palestinians every single day, there's oppression, there's complete home demolitions, everything you can imagine they're doing in the West Bank. So why are you asking me about Hamas now? Why are you not asking me about my childhood, what I had to go through? Why are you not asking me about how I didn't see my dad for six years and then I went, I saw him, I saw him only for a few months and then he was, he died. He got really sick and died. I couldn't see him for six years. They prevented me from being with my father. They prevented me from having a normal childhood. I had to be in therapy for years and years to get over the sound of bombs, the, the pictures of murdered children in front of my eyes and the guilt that I felt that I survived and they didn't. Why are you not asking me about the 30 members of my close family that were killed? Why are you not asking me about the thousand Palestinian children that have been killed in the last 10 days? Why are you not asking me about how my best friend, a journalist, marked clearly as press was killed? Why are you not asking me this? I'm not a spokesperson for Hamas. I'm not a part of any political party. I'm a journalist. My job is to report on what's happening. My colleague, Mu'taz Azaizeh, they bombed his house, killing so many of his family members. My other colleague, Ali Jadallah, 
just in the last 10 days they've killed his brothers and elderly father my boss and mentor Rushdi Saraj was killed as he was in his home on an airstrike it was literally targeted the assassination of him because he was a journalist they're literally targeting journalists and trying to threaten them if you are doing your job we will kill you and this is what Israel has been doing for the last decades because journalists are the only way for the world to know what's actually happening in Palestine I don't remember a day in my life where there was peace. I don't remember a day in my life where I felt that I'm not going to die the next moment. I was only eight years old when I witnessed the first aggression on Gaza. It was in 2008 and then it was in 2012 and then it was in 2014 and only in 2014 that I was able to comprehend what's happening. Like when I was eight and when I was 12, I didn't really understand death and killing of people. I didn't really understand losses. I didn't understand destruction. I didn't understand white phosphorus or chemical weapons. I was a child. The only thing I wanted to do is play and be around my family. When I was 14, I was in the hospital crying, telling my parents, I don't believe you're alive. I was so in shock and in PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that I genuinely believed my family were completely killed because of the amount of killings I've seen as a 14-year-old. If you're a Palestinian living in Gaza and you were born in 2000, you would have been living through six aggressions by now. This is not just the first time that Israel decides to completely wipe out complete neighborhoods and attack civilians and attack hospitals, but this is the most barbaric attack that we've seen. Palestinians in Gaza have not seen one day of peace, not one day that my family and I felt safe in our homes. What is it like to be a Palestinian? What is it like to grow up in Gaza? And I, I don't have one answer. I have millions of answers. I have thousands of answers. Growing up in Gaza meant that by the age of 14, I saw literally body parts of people, children being murdered in front of my eyes. I remember I, I used to say, if I survive this aggression, if I make it alive, I'm going to write a book and tell the whole world about what's happening. And I was only 14 years old. I didn't realize what was happening to me then. This is what it's like to grow up in Gaza. But it's also all the nights that I spent talking to my dad about politics and how Palestine will be free one day and how my culture is important and how I should be committed and steadfast on my land and how my mom cooks Palestinian food for us and teaches us the recipes that my grandma made and that her great-grandma made and that her great-great-grandma made. Being Palestinian is so painful, but at the same time, I would never want to be anything but Palestinian because I know my people, they're the strongest people I've ever met. They endure so much. Being Palestinian means that you have friends in the West Bank, but you're unable to meet them or see them. Being Palestinian means that you're a Muslim or Christian and want to go pray in Al-Aqsa Mosque or in the Church of Nativity, and you can't just simply because you're from Gaza. Being Palestinian means that your existence is threatened every single day. And not only that, but that every single day you need to wake up and convince the world why you're a human and why your life matters just like the rest of the world. Being Palestinian is hard. Being Palestinian is difficult. But being Palestinian is something I will never stop being. For the first time in my life, I feel like my voice is being heard because I'm using my platform. I'm trying to work 24-7 to tell the world what's happening. And even if news media organizations don't care about Palestinian voices, there is independent news outlets that are trying every single day to amplify Palestinian journalist voices. And Double Down News is one of them. So please support them.
The following monologue is something that I wrote, delivered, and recorded at the Hill. It was then censored, and I was then canceled and fired. Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrat said and the response it prompted. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government. And we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhumane acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country, and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups. In particular, by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are just a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to return to Israel, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. 
It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish, though if they're Palestinian, that's another issue entirely. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. The Israeli citizenship law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. More recently, the nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status. It also stipulated the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq, Al-Mezin Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli apartheid policies. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, has declared, the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. B'Tselem divides the way Israeli apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israeli-controlled areas even if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who live in one of the units it controls to obtain status in another and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area controlled by Israel and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their lives and determines their future. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and the family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. This demographic tension is recognized by Israeli officials and politicians who have described their own country as an apartheid state. Former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair wrote in 2002, we established an apartheid regime in the occupied territories immediately following their capture. That oppressive regime exists to this day. Zahava Galon, former chair of Israel's Meretz party said in 2006, Israel was relegated to the level of an apartheid state. In 2007, Israel's former education minister, Shulamit Aloni, wrote, The state of Israel practices its own quite violent form of apartheid with the native Palestinian population. In 2008, former environment minister Yossi Sarid said, What acts like apartheid is run like apartheid and harasses like apartheid is not a duck, it is apartheid. 
In 2015, former Mossad chief Mayer Dagan said, President Benjamin Netanyahu's policies are leading to either a binational state or an apartheid state. Even Israel's prime ministers have used the A-word. In a recently published 1976 interview, assassinated Israeli prime minister Yitzhak Rabin said, if we don't want to get to apartheid, I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term a million and a half more Arabs inside a Jewish state. In 2007, yet another prime minister, Ehud Olmert, warned, if the day comes when the two-state solution collapses and we face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights, then as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. Prime Minister Ehud Barak said in 2010, as long as in this territory west of the Jordan River, there is only one political entity called Israel, it is going to be either non-Jewish or non-democratic. If this block of millions of Palestinians cannot vote, that will be an apartheid state. But there is no other standard more universally respected in defining apartheid, not the UN, not the international criminal courts, not human rights organizations, not Israeli prime ministers, than the people of South Africa who lived under the system of apartheid. After all, apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means apartness. It was the official policy in South Africa from 1948 to 1994, allowing white South Africans in the minority to rule over and discriminate against the vast majority of black South Africans. The definitions from the United Nations and the International Criminal Court come out of their experiences. In 1997, Nelson Mandela said, the UN took a strong stand against apartheid and over the years an international consensus was built, which helped to bring an end to this iniquitous system. But we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. In 2013, Desmond Tutu recalled being struck by the similarities between what he experienced in apartheid South Africa and what he observed in Israel. I have visited the occupied Palestinian territories and have witnessed the humiliation of Palestinians at Israeli military checkpoints. The inhumanity that won't let ambulances reach the injured, Farmers tend their land or children attend school. This treatment is familiar to me and the many black South Africans who were corralled and harassed by the security forces of the apartheid government. Listen to South Africa's Minister for International Relations, Naledi Pandor, addressing the United States General Assembly just last week. While we work to address contemporary conflicts, we should not ignore long-standing conflicts, such as that of the people of Palestine, which has been on the United Nations agenda throughout the seven decades of existence of this organization. We cannot ignore the words of the former Israeli negotiator at the Oslo talks, Daniel Levy, who addressed the UN Security Council recently and referred to the increasingly weighty body of scholarly, legal, and public opinion that has designated Israel to be perpetrating apartheid in the territories under its control. To my fellow Jews, to my friends in the Democratic Party who want to support Israel and think of themselves as progressive, it's important to look at what Israeli law today does, what the lived experiences of Palestinians today means as defined under international law and what our friends from South Africa have long pointed out. But we should not stop there. 
South Africans didn't just define apartheid, they dismantled it. Instead of attacking Rashida Tlaib for her candor, her critics should ask themselves how Israeli apartheid could be dismantled. What would a post-apartheid country look like? Lashana Tova. And that's our program for today, a two-hour special. If you found this of value, if you found it objective and reasonable, then by all means share it with other people. Let other people know what they may not know. I believe in reasonableness. I believe in the idea that before you make a judgment, look at all the evidence, hear all the sides. Then when you make a judgment, you're making one coming from a more objective place. And right now, we've seen from the beginning of this new carnage, we've seen wrong on both sides. But what we are not talking about is how can you justify killing innocent people and children, and it could end up being in the tens if not hundreds of thousands because what Hamas did in their attack against the settlers. I mean, if you don't take that into account, then we really have a problem. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening and watching and have a nice day.